Jesus revealed something about God that not only changed how people saw him, but also changed what God wants from people, what God wants from you, from how you talk to how you walk. If pleasing God is important to you, then listen up, because this changes everything. This is the Shut Up Devil Show, and I am Kyle Winkler, author of this book right here, Shut Up Devil, and creator of the Shut Up Devil app. I'm all about shutting down the lies and struggles that keep you from thriving in God's design for your life. I'm here to do it every single week with a live online audience. I'd love for you to join us all live sometime Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central at kylewinkler.org live. By the way, don't forget, whether you are watching or listening, tap that subscribe or follow button right now so that you never miss a show. Just a heads up, I hope you have a pen and paper ready or you have your notes app open. You are going to want to take notes throughout this message, I think. It's packed with scripture. It's packed with revelation. First, a story, though. If anyone should not have been hungry and homeless, it was this guy. He was the son of an exceptionally wealthy man, like rich with lots of land and employees. Nevertheless, this young man suddenly found himself having to convince a local farmer to hire him so that he could survive. Now, convincing the farmer wasn't too difficult. As the youngest child, he grew up believing that he had to justify his place in his Jewish family. So, Getting the farmer to hire him was just kind of another exercise in the same process. Now, I'm not privy to know everything about the young man's upbringing, except that I know that his dad didn't instill any sense that he had to prove himself. Beyond the typical sibling rivalry, the notion came from his religious tradition. You see, this was many years ago when firstborn boys received all the favor and the honor. After all, they were the long-dreamed-of anointed one who made somebody a parent. And I could tell you, as the youngest of four boys myself, the unconscious biases that come with that aren't missed by the other siblings, even in modern families that aren't Jewish. Back then, though, they literally put their money where their mouth was. According to Jewish law, the oldest son in a family received a double share of the father's inheritance. Every other son received only a single share. Now, since the man's dad was rich, even a single share was going to be significant. Everything in it could be sold for a fortune. This man particularly saw that the money could buy his ticket out from the shadow of his older brother and the rules of their religion. He's hardly the only son in history who's ever wanted that, right? And he wanted it in short order. So with the charm and the persuasive skills that only a baby of a family could possess, he swayed his father to divide up the inheritance immediately. And far, far away, he ran. He ran himself right into the ground. Within no time, he spent his daddy's money on only God knows what. Within no time, he was hired to pour slop into a trough for hogs. Within no time, he wished he'd never left home. 
Not the only son in history that's ever been there either, right? Remembering that his dad's employees had a better life than he now did, he wondered if there was a way home. He figured that getting back into the family was a lost cause. With everything he had done, he felt unworthy to even be called a son. But maybe he could return as a worker. Maybe he could re-earn his father's favor or, at the very least, make a little means to improve his situation. He had to take the chance. Have you figured out this story by now? I just retold the first half of one of Jesus' most popular stories with just a few extra words. It's in Luke 15. It's most known as the parable of the prodigal son. I once heard somebody joke that it's the parable of the absent mother. Where is she anyway, right? Jesus, however, used this story to emphasize someone else. As I've been showing you throughout my messages in the last couple months, Jesus did things to shock his original audience. Telling this story is one of those things. First, people would have been stunned to hear about a father who parted with all his possessions before his death, like while he still needed them. That probably surprises most of us today. Double shocking is that this father gave it all away, likely knowing he would fund his son's total misuse of freedom. At least as shocking is that when the son returned home to the father, after squandering everything, the father took him back so easily. And not as a hired hand, not even on probationary terms, but his dad threw him a party to affirm and celebrate his place in the family as if nothing ever happened. Now, his older brother wasn't all that happy about it. He argued that it's unfair. I've always worked for you and never got special treatment, he said to his dad. Undoubtedly, Jesus intended his audience, his Jewish audience, to see themselves in the older brother. He wanted them to recognize that just like him, they too mistakenly based their position with God on what they do for him. Jesus also wanted some others to see themselves as the wandering and wayward younger brother. Both characters are as relatable to people today as they were when he first told the story, right? But Jesus especially desired for us all to see God in the Father. That's because God as a Father was a revolutionary idea back then. Let me explain. Go to John 5, 17. This is the story of when Jesus healed on the Sabbath. If you remember anything from this story, him healing on the Sabbath infuriated the religious leaders because they considered it working on a day of rest. But they doubled down on their commitment to kill him when Jesus said, my father is always working and so am I. The point of their contention was my father. They considered it to be a blasphemous claim of equality with God. But furthermore, they believed it minimized the holiness of God to personalize him in such a way. I know that's hard to understand these days. You probably begin your prayers by addressing God as Father. Most do. But in the 4,000 years before Jesus, God's people never addressed him that personally. 
On a few occasions in the Old Testament, when they use the word father, like I think there's an example in Isaiah, it was always our father or Israel's father. They referred to him as the nation's founder or creator. You might think of it like Americans call George Washington a founding father, but you'd never think of him as your personal father, would you? I mean, could you imagine if you heard somebody today say, my father, George Washington? You'd think they were nuts. If that's precisely how Jesus spoke of God, not just here or there either. Fathers, how Jesus referred to God the most frequently. To the religious leaders back then, that was more than crazy, it was criminal. And it was further proof that he had a radical agenda that they needed to squash. John's gospel exposes this agenda more than any other. Before I lead you to it, keep in mind that each of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, emphasize unique aspects of Jesus's ministry. That's just the natural outcome of having four different authors, though I'm sure God had his hand in it as a way of providing a complete picture of Jesus and what he achieved. Matthew stresses Old Testament prophecy, how Jesus fulfilled it as the promised Messiah. Mark offers a fast-paced account of Jesus's ministry. Luke used eyewitness testimonies to prove Jesus's divinity and care for people. John's gospel, it breaks the mold though, compared to all the others. It's considered the most theologically developed of them all, maybe because it was written by Jesus's beloved disciple, the one who knew his heart the most. Whatever the case, the difference is notable, noticeable from the very first verse. Take a look. John 1.1 1, 1 doesn't start with a genealogy or the narrative of Jesus' birth. It starts with a description of Jesus and God's inseparable relationship. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Throughout his gospel, John continues to build on this theme of relationship until it reaches a crescendo of extraordinary significance to all of us. As a first point, Jesus is referred to as Father most frequently in John's Gospel. That's evidence in just the first few chapters, really. In John 2, to the merchants who sold sacrifices, Jesus attributes the temple as my Father's house. In John 3, prophesying about Jesus, John the Baptist remarks that the Father loves his Son. John 4, during the encounter with the Samaritan woman, Jesus is, discusses worshiping the Father. There are like a hundred or more instances, but these first three reflect how Jesus describes God until his resurrection. Jesus revealed him as the Father and my Father. That's huge. Okay. But in John's gospel, this is only the first half of his agenda. When Jesus rises from the dead, everything gets 
much more personal. Let's go there. John 20, Resurrection Day. Before daybreak on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene decides to pay a visit to Jesus' tomb. And she notices something strange. The stone to the entrance of the tomb is rolled away. The tomb is, the tomb is vacant. So she's confused. She's probably frustrated. She runs off to let the disciples know, and they get frantic. But they see that Mary's right. All that remains of Jesus are the wrappings that covered his bloody body. Like most humans, they go right to the worst-case scenario. They're convinced that somebody stole his body, but who are they going to tell this to? They've got nowhere to turn, so they leave devastated. They believe for a moment that Jesus is not only dead, but there's no body for them to mourn. But just for a moment. Mary stays back to grieve. She finally manages to shed some tears when something interrupts her yet again. Now, I can't say if it's a divine unction or a woman's intuition or what, but something tells her to double-check the tomb. As she ducks her head in, she finds two white-robed men at each end of the tomb. Now, she doesn't seem to realize that they're angels. She questions them until another person outside the tomb catches her attention, which she thinks is a gardener. She turns to him to express her concerns. Mary, he says, to calm her anxiety, which works. Something about the familiar way he says her name opens her eyes like a miracle, unveiling who he is. It's Jesus. Talk about feeling all the feels. Mary went from grief to confusion, to anger, back to grief, now to joy. She's overcome by emotion. She throws herself at him. And who can blame her? I'd say we all would do that if we encountered a loved one come back from the dead. But Jesus doesn't allow her to cling to him for long. No, he's got a mission in mind for Mary. John 20, verse 17. He instructs Mary, Go find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That's a revolutionary message. It's a long setup there for a revolutionary message. Mary runs away to tell it. But do you wonder what's so revolutionary about it? What's significant or different about what Jesus said there? Well, for starters, He tasked a woman to give testimony to men, as if he didn't smash enough rules already. This was a huge one to break in those days. And there's a message in it for some people these days. That message is bolstered by the fact that Jesus gave a woman the most world-changing message of all. You see, in this instruction to Mary... It marks the first time in John's gospel that Jesus described God as more than my father or the father, but as your father. And in this, John's gospel reaches its crescendo. It's what he prepared his readers to see as the culmination of 
Jesus' incarnation. Go back to John chapter 1 in his introduction. You'll see here in verse 12 what John has been leading us up to, what Jesus was leading us up to. He says, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Revealing God as Father was enormous enough. It was yet another level to reveal that people could be God's children. Now, I'm not talking about revealing that people came from God. Everybody understood that they came from a creator back then. There were no Big Bang or evolutionary theories then. Now, not everybody knew the creator's name, and everybody knew the right name, but they knew they were offspring of something more. The Jewish people knew the creator's name. They also knew they were made in his image. So again, the issue here is not that they didn't know that they were the offspring or creation of a creator. The issue back then was that there was a difference between being somebody's offspring and being somebody's child, becoming somebody's child. When the New Testament writer said that we are made children of God by faith, they were talking about the Roman process through which a wealthy biological father selected one of his own sons to share his fortune. In other words, the father gave one of his sons the rights to the family through something called sonship or adoption. I caution you at this point, don't confuse this adoption with our modern sense of adoption. In those days, adoption had nothing to do with a child being unwanted by a parent and then physically given to a new parent. At that time, it was about a child being chosen for a special union that offered irrevocable benefits. To be adopted by your own biological father was the ultimate stamp of his approval. Through it, the son literally received a new identity. That's why it's also called sonship. Any of his previous debts or current or future obligations were canceled. There's nothing to prove or earn anymore. The blessings of the Father were available immediately and forever upon that. Do you recognize the similarities from the prodigal son story? Just like the son. No one is truly fatherless. Both unbelievers and believers have a heavenly Father who created and loves them. Certainly people rebel against him and they wander away from him. This is often due to wrong beliefs that come from religion, but never from God. That's why helping people realize that God is good is often the first step to bringing them home. When somebody returns home by accepting God's goodness as demonstrated by Jesus, they are celebrated instantly with sonship. They are adopted, which means they are united in personal relationship with God forever, forgiven of all debts, immediately relieved of any obligations, and instantly offered all of his promises with no conditions. This is what it means to be a son or daughter of God, which changes everything 
about what God wants from you, from how you talk to how you walk. He wants you to act like a child. Growing up, I watched many children grow up. My mom babysat for up to a dozen babies and toddlers every day at our house. I love to hear the babbling of babies as they learn that they could make certain noises. Other baby noises weren't so enjoyable, especially not as a teenager on a summer morning when I wanted to sleep in. But some of my favorite moments were getting to hear a child's first word. Parents would often bet on whose name they would say first. Would it be mama or dada? In my experience, hands down, it was dada. Naturally, the dads took great pride in this, but I don't think it was because anybody was their favorite. It was probably just because dada was easier to say. Now, I know that what a child calls their mother or father is learned behavior. They don't know to say mama or dad instinctively. They're taught it, but it sticks. Most address the parent as mom or dad for the rest of their lives. It's intimate. To call them anything else would seem impersonal and cold, even disrespectful. This isn't only true in English, but in every other language and culture. German children often refer to mom as muti and dad as hati. Brazilians use may and pi. Children in Israel call them I am a and Abba. Do you recognize that last one? Abba? That's the name Jesus used when he spoke to God directly. Look at Mark 14, verse 36. This is just hours before Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. His fate on the cross was heavy on his mind. He prayed, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Interestingly, Mark chose to keep Abba in Aramaic rather than translate it to Greek. He did this to emphasize the intimate nature of Jesus's relationship with God. It's a glimpse into a raw, tender moment of a child confiding in his dad. Beyond how Jesus addressed God in prayer, he demonstrated a childlike relationship between the Father and him throughout the Gospels. He encouraged people to approach God in the same way. In Matthew 18.3, he says, unless you become like little children, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. He says things like this using children in a lot of his illustrations throughout the Gospels. The more spiritually mature you get, the more childlike you get. Now, don't confuse childlike with childish. To be childish is to be senseless and silly, maybe even reckless and rebellious. Though God has grace for our growth, immaturity like that isn't what Jesus meant. The childlike relationship with God that he modeled for us is one of trust and security rooted in intimacy with a good father a good dad. Think of it this way, maybe in our terms. 
A child runs to hug their parent, sweaty from an afternoon of play with stains on their clothes, smelling like outside. They give no thought to how they look or smell. They don't fear that their parent will reject them. They approach their parent with not much more than the simple faith that they are welcome and loved as they are. And as his beloved children, that's how God wants us to approach him too. Yet despite Jesus' encouragement, I find that childlike is the opposite of how many children of God approach him. Most approach God as only his servant instead. I did. For years, I measured my maturity in the faith by what I did, by what I gave, by what I sacrificed for him. I also believed all of those things gauged how much God was pleased with me and whether or not he would bless me and how much he would bless me. But that's not how you relate to a good father. That's how you relate to a slave master. It's not what God wants. And if Jesus' actions and words don't convince you that God wants a different kind of relationship with you, then Paul's words should clarify it. In Galatians 4, 7, he says, Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. Please understand, this isn't about being idle or inactive. Sometimes I get criticism about People thinking that I'm saying that there's nothing to do. Christians do lots of things. We give of our time, our talents, and our treasures in service to God and to help advance his message. The Apostle Paul did. In response to God's goodness and love, it was his pleasure to serve God, but he didn't serve God to earn his pleasure or goodness. He did it with the delight of one who already had God's pleasure and goodness. Do you see the difference? That's the right childlike approach that we all should have in whatever we do for God. Here's the bottom line, though. The most important thing to God is who you are to him, not what you do for him. Jesus came to reveal that God is your good father and you are his beloved child. And amazingly, this means that you also get to call God Abba, Father, and enjoy all the acceptance and approval that comes with it. Romans 8.15, Paul says it. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you receive God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. If you do nothing else but be God's child, that's enough. I pray right now. Father, Abba, help your child who is listening to receive all that it means about who they are to you, your beloved child, because of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, 
because of everything I just taught, I believe one of the best things that we can say about ourselves is I am a child of God. And I actually mean say, like speak it aloud. I stress speaking it aloud because God designed words to have a supernatural power to renew our minds, bring us peace, to even activate miracles. When you say, I am a child of God, it affirms the greatest, truest thing about you. And that does miracles in your emotions and behaviors, I'm telling you. Eventually, your feelings start to catch up with it and everything else starts to come into alignment. Right believing produces right behaving, which produces right living. Well, you get your belief in line by right speaking often. So I have a book all about the power of speaking God's word. It's titled Activating the Power of God's Word. In the first four chapters of this book, I teach about how the law of the spoken word that God used to create the world is available for you to activate to change your world. Then I take you through 16 declarations. I handpicked 16 declarations, most powerful things that you can say. And I teach through each of them so that it's not just about you mouthing words, but you're speaking in faith. That's where the power is. Activating the power of God's word, 16 strategic declarations to transform your life, is available wherever books are sold. Or I'll send you a signed copy if you order it on my website at kylewinkler.org slash activate the word. That's kylewinkler.org slash activate the word. Okay, that does it for the Shut Up Devil show. Remember, God is good and he is for you and we're here for you too. Every week on my website at kylewinkler.org on our podcast and wherever you get your social media, don't forget wherever you're watching or listening to tap that subscribe or follow button so that you never miss a show. See you next time.